0: This is another iRoar podcast. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. Uh, a proud member of the iRoar podcast network of pro animal podcasts. Um, I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today's episode often we talk about books, often I interview book authors. Today's episode is just me. Um, I'm not really talking about the book, though, I'm drawing on. You know some ideas I may be learned in books, Uh, and I'm looking at a few recent uh, articles, uh, topics that have been dominating climate and environmental news lately, Um, and just kind of giving my two cents or what they made me think about. The first is going to be the flooding in Pakistan, which has been actually absolutely horrific, um, and is reminding me of you know I think one of the key reasons that. I got into climate in the first place, um, which is just the massive global injustice of it. Um, so I'll get into numbers in that section um, and basically make kind of a, a briefcase for for climate reparations for the for the global south paid for by the wealthier countries that have done most of the emitting. Then in the next part, I talk about permitting reform and the uh, Joe Manchin supported side deal for uh, streamlining permits of both fossil fuel, renewable transmission, hydrogen, nuclear, and all sorts of energy projects. But as you may have heard, among them, fossil fuels, um, he, yeah, he wants to streamline the permitting process for those. um, Some Democrats are on board, some so far have not been.
1: Um, Can I get into the pros and cons of that? You know, in that section, I, I do refer to the Inflation Reduction Act as a net positive. I think that, that it is a net positive, but also that sort of net isn't necessarily the best way of thinking about it. It does both good and bad things, and the good things don't make the bad things not happen. And then last, I talk about um, some discourse that I hope anyway was mostly on Twitter about plastic bags um, and the misleading use of a chart that purported to show that single-use plastic bags actually had lower environmental impact than reusable bags. This was already a misreading of the chart, and the chart itself was a I'll say at least misleading representation of the underlying study. So I get into that, uh, clear the air a bit and talk about maybe why people are so quick to believe that hippie environmentalists who use reasonable bags are actually wrong. Um, look, maybe sometimes they are, but in this case they weren't. All right. Um, hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, if you do, please like rate subscribe. Uh, if you're interested in future episodes, um, please sign up for my free weekly newsletter. The link is in the episode description along with some other links about um, the issues discussed in this podcast. Thanks so much. First, I want to talk about Pakistan. By now, you have likely heard of the floods that are devastating
0: that country. I want to start with some numbers just to get a sense of the scope of the damage. It's the fifth most populous nation in the world, Um, 220 million people about, and a full one in seven have been displaced. So that's 33 million people. That's as many as New York and Pennsylvania combined. It's more people than there are in Texas. Think of the entire state of Texas had been displaced, and then they threw in Kansas for good measure. By comparison, that's more than twice as many People, as there have been displaced in ukraine since the start of the russian invasion in february that's not to make a direct comparison between the two events uh ukraine has had far more deaths than pakistan um but i i bring that up because i think it's important to understand that environmental violence is violence it is violence that like the russian invasion has a perpetrator just because it seems like an act of nature, an act of God. We don't directly see what is causing this. It is, you know, not that hard ultimately to trace the those who are responsible. Now, we don't actually know for 100% sure at this point how much of the flooding can be attributed to climate change and warming temperatures. Um, you know, a, a, an area the size of the state of Virginia has been flooded, we, we can't say, oh, these parts would have been flooded and these wouldn't have been um, if, you know, temperatures were one degree Celsius lower. But what we do know is that there are reasons to believe that um, warming temperatures contributed to the high rainfall. And there are strong reasons to believe that events like this will only become more common in the future if we continue to let temperatures rise. Um, so, you know, for instance, some areas of, of, Pakistan received levels of rain five to seven times higher than is typical. So what could be helping cause this, um, warmer air is able to hold more moisture than cooler air. Uh, I'm recording this in Southern California, which is in the midst of kind of a continuous drought at this point. Um, and it is maybe hard to believe that, warm air holds more moisture but it's true uh and this means that the warmer air around pakistan uh, was potentially able to hold more moisture and thus produce more rain another reason is that um, there are glaciers in in mountainous regions of pakistan and they're melting at a faster rate than normal and this also puts more moisture in the air There are other factors as well related to how, you know, changing temperatures, change atmospheric patterns, weather patterns, uh, airflow patterns. Um, so there's, there's good reason to believe that, you know, we can point to climate change as a cause of at least some of the damage in Pakistan. Okay. So who can we point to as the cause of climate change? It's definitely not Pakistan, um, from, from what I've seen, it looks like Pakistan emits less than 1% of global emissions, despite being, again, a fairly big country. How about the United States? Um, historically, we're number one. We've, we've emitted about 20%. Uh, one in five of all carbon dioxide molecules emitted by humanity since 1850 has come from the United States. Um, even today, you know, China is a much bigger country. It emits more, um, but we're still responsible for 11% of emissions, despite being only about 4% of global population. Um, The United States is still a key driver of this crisis. In general, the wealthier, richer countries are a driver of this crisis. And as we see in Pakistan, um, it is often the, the poorer countries that have not emitted as much, who bear the brunt of the damage. This is not a new observation for me. Obviously, this is something that climate justice advocates have been bringing up basically since we knew about climate change, um, this massive global injustice. But I think Pakistan is an important opportunity to really just drive home um, how far we are from anything remotely looking like justice, even with, you know, progress in the United States, like the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed. Um, that you know, in a previous episode with Johanna Bozwa we discussed that the act has its its warts, its its serious problems. Um, but maybe I do think is is a net step forward. So I want to take us back to my freshman year of college. This was fall 2011. I was in a, a practical ethics class. Um, we were in a unit on climate change ethics, and one of the the papers we read was about. Um, was about sort of global justice and climate change, and the the author, some philosopher, uh, went through basically what are different um, what are different ways we could think about this problem of sort of who should be responsible for solving climate change. So when we have negative impacts like today, we might say like the flooding in Pakistan, um, you know, who should pay for the cleanup? This is you know tens of billions of dollars of damage they're they're estimating, and and this this philosopher you know put forward different principles. So there's polluter pays, which is maybe you know who's emitting the most right now, or there's sort of whoever broke it uh, should fix it, and maybe that's whoever has emitted the most historically. Um, and then there's you know who's who's able to pay for it. So maybe it doesn't matter who's polluting; it just matters that. Countries like the United States are are wealthy and and have money to pay for it, and so they should. Um, And what struck me reading this as a freshman in college, and I think why it's something that was super influential in me deciding to uh, become more involved in, in climate politics, is that every possible way of thinking about what is an ethical response to this brings us to wealthy countries like the United States should be paying a lot more, doing a lot more to to fix this problem. Whether it's to decarbonize themselves, whether it's to help other countries decarbonize, whether it's to help other countries, um, you know, deal with the devastating impacts that have already begun. And the reality is that we aren't doing almost anything. I mean, so we have the Inflation Reduction Act. This combined with other climate policies and technological advances Expected to bring United States emissions down maybe 40, 42%. Different estimates are given different numbers compared to 2005 number uh, emissions uh, by 2030. Sorry, let me say that again. The Inflation Reduction Act is supposed to reduce US emissions by roughly 40% by 2030 compared to 2005. Okay, we got through that. Meanwhile, the goal globally is to reduce emissions by about half by 2030. That's what's estimated to be needed to be on a good pace to get to, um, to keep warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, um, compared to pre-industrial levels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're on pace for 40% reduction to be in line with, you know, the global goals, we should be aiming for 50%, right? Well, that means, you know, we're doing okay. Maybe we just need some more policies over the next eight years to to get us there. But it seems like we're on track, right? But again, why should we be expected to reduce 50% and Pakistan also be expected to reduce 50%? Why should our relative burden be equal when, again, we are the ones responsible for this mess? We have, are the ones who have been emitting more um, historically, uh, you know, a any acknowledgement of this would suggest that we should be reducing by much much more than 50 percent by 2030 and yet yes you hear that from groups like sunrise or the climate justice alliance or or climate justice groups but you don't hear that from uh you know any any really mainstream politician is not putting forward a plan to by 2030 be significantly more than 50 percent reduced emissions the other issue with this is that in many ways, the first 50% is the easiest 50%. Um, you know, as, as huge a project as it's going to be to build all those solar and wind panels to, to start phasing, phasing out fossil fuels from the electric grid and, and to switch to, you know, more electrified transit and electric cars for transportation there's there's all these harder things too like shipping, aviation, cement, steel, and yes there are ways to deal with those um and you know some of what's in the Inflation Reduction Act is also going to start dealing with those or start dealing with those but getting even 50% reductions by 2030 does not necessarily mean we're on track to then get all the way down to zero. So anyway, long story short, domestically we should be doing way more but perhaps even more important is helping other countries decarbonize. So a few years back in the Paris Agreement, uh, wealthy developed countries committed to contributing $100 billion in what's called the Green Climate Fund uh, to basically provide funds for uh, the Global South developing countries to help um, you know implement green energy projects, other decarbonization projects. Um, first, $100 billion may be a great start. Maybe it's not enough. Um, you know, there are estimates globally that it'll take, you know, more than $2 trillion for the world to decarbonize. You know, not all of that might be the sorts of projects that the Green Climate Fund covers, but when you consider that the flooding in Pakistan is already responsible for about $30 billion in damage, hundred billion billion, three three times that, doesn't really sound like enough to help the whole Global South decarbonize and, and deal with climate issues okay. What's worse, though, is that most wealthy countries aren't remotely coming close to uh, meeting this goal. The U.S. initially pledged $3 billion under Obama. The Obama administration did not pay all this $3 billion and then and then uh, Trump backed out of the Paris Agreement, so we never even did that. Um, again, responsible for about 20% of historic emissions. Uh, we were going to do billion toward this $100 billion, and then we didn't even manage to do that. Biden gets us back in the Paris Agreement, comes along, uh, requested in his budget earlier this year a whopping $1.6 billion for the Green Climate Fund. It's more than before, but again, these are paltry numbers compared to the scale of what's happening. Again, U.S., 20% of historic emissions. I know I've said that a lot. Look at Pakistan, 66% excuse me, 33 million people displaced. If you say 20% of that is 6.6 million, that's the entire populations of Los Angeles and Chicago combined. It's more people than live in Colorado, twice as many as live in Utah. I'm just trying to get a sense of, if you say this is a climate change-induced disaster, which again, how much it's climate change-induced remains to be worked out, but let's just say it's all climate change-induced. If you say the U.S. is responsible for 20% of that, then the U.S. is responsible for displacing 6.6 million people. This is more than in many, many states. Again, it's huge. It's as surely as Russian troops invaded Ukraine, U.S. emissions are invading other countries, are displacing people, are killing people. There is blood on the hands of this country It's not something nice we do when we give money toward other countries. It's something that we are morally obligated to do. I I don't want to harp too much longer on this because it's maybe a bit obvious to many of you. Um, But two things I do want to bring up is that Pakistan uh, is billions of dollars in debt. Um, One proposal put forward by the Climate and Community Project, uh, which is a climate policy organization that I've interviewed some people from there on this podcast um one of them is Olufemi Otiwo he uh, co-authored a, a report on um the role of debt in climate reparations uh you know the debt from poor countries that is to rich countries should be canceled um that the debt that is to private actors should be restructured in some way um you know these countries already have to have to spend all this money to deal with disasters and decarbonize themselves we shouldn't also be having them pay off money to rich countries uh, especially when those rich countries are in many cases not just through climate change but through other forms of economic environmental extraction and and colonization are are part of why these countries are poor Um, and then maybe one more thing I want to add before we move on Um, well two things first is that yes the United States is a rich country some of you may be familiar with the national debt being something that is relatively large-sounding, um, but as many economists have explained in, in different ways from different backgrounds, this is not actually an urgent threat to our well-being. The U.S. is, you know, creates its own currency, is able to fund itself. Um, we should not be worried about the debt. We should be worried about climate change, um, and I think we should be worried about people uh each other um and that includes people who don't live here and yeah just morally the the case for climate reparations is so solid and it's i think just deeply upsetting and absurd that it's so far from um public discussion outside of outside of the progressive circles and the second thing um regular listeners know I like bringing up uh, Amitav Ghosh. Uh, One of the things he writes in his recent book, The Nutmeg's Curse, is about how, um, and he also mentions this in in The Great Derangement, his his prior nonfiction book about climate change, is about how um, basically the United States and other wealthy countries kind of created this conception of what is the good life? What is, what does it mean to be wealthy? What should other people aspire to? Um, and obviously for centuries, systematically denied this uh, to to people in other countries. Um, in many ways, U.S. wealth was built on extraction from those other countries. And so we get to the present uh, and we realize that if everyone in the world lived like people in the United States, we would destroy, uh, you know, we would destabilize the climate, destroy so many humans and other creatures so much even faster than we are now it's simply not sustainable. And I think part of that global justice element of climate change is not only financially providing for other countries, canceling their debt and stuff like that, um, you know, helping out in disasters, but giving up on a conception of the good life that um, just is fundamentally one that can't be shared by 7 billion people. And, uh, you know, what Ghosh and others point out is that we can change this, we can still have good lives, they'll just maybe look different. And, you know, when when countries like the United States set, set different standards, uh, that can hopefully resonate outward. Okay, so one of the things that to me is just crucial here to me is one of the central challenges of climate change is when we talk about, oh, why aren't, you know, u.s politicians campaigning on giving trillions of dollars to other countries uh people in other countries don't vote for u.s politicians um and obviously i think there are lots of reasons we can say that um u.s politicians aren't necessarily listening to their voters uh or at least voters are not
1: the average voter is
0: not you know maybe the primary uh voice that a average u.s population is is listening to there may be more concerned about corporate donors or, or media perceptions or whatever but nonetheless there is a problem i think when the actions of a so-called democracy have such fundamental effects elsewhere in the world that there is no way for um, those other people to have any say in our democracy how do we reform democracy to be both uh, more global to include um, to make sure people have voices who, who aren't heard, whether that's people who live there, whether that's future people, whether that's non-human people. Um, I think all of these are some of the, the thornier and more interesting questions raised by climate change, um, that on some past episodes and hopefully some future episodes we, we grapple with on this podcast. Okay. The reason I bring up democracy and climate change uh, is because the part two of this episode is about permanent reform. Uh, Many of you have no doubt heard that as part of the deal um, that got Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, to agree to the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which was kind of a reduced version of Build Build Back Better. Uh, but still ultimately a, a positive climate bill with some very negative elements. Um, part of why Manchin even agreed to what he agreed to is um, on the sort of promise from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that uh, Democrats would pass permitting reform. What is permitting reform? Well, on the surface, it maybe could be a good thing. Um, so this is a big asterisk. Uh, don't don't quote that part out of context um, because we're gonna have to build a lot of solar panels wind farms transmission lines um, you know green hydrogen projects potentially other uh, forms of energy geothermal what have you um, and building in this country often goes slowly and um, so sure, maybe we should look at ways to streamline the permitting process and be able to build some of this stuff faster. Okay, but permitting reform, as it's actually being proposed, is I think something to be a bit more worried about. So we don't have like a full bill or anything, but there is sort of a one-page document that's been you know tossed around, and um, a couple things stand out immediately. One is that as Manchin wants it, this permanent reform bill would would prioritize fossil fuels in the same breath as they prioritize renewables. Um, he explicitly demands sort of an all-of-the-above you know, energy approach. And second, uh, it requires um, streamlining and approving the Mountain Valley Pipeline, um, which is in West Virginia, which climate justice advocates have opposed for years. Uh, they don't want another pipeline, um, but Manchin does. He's from West Virginia. He's someone who seems to really like fossil fuels. And critics of the plan say that's what's going to benefit most uh, fossil fuel pipelines. Um, and maybe it's a good thing that uh, our environmental laws allow us to drag out those fights and oppose them. Now, there are examples of people opposing wind farms, solar farms, um transmission lines that would connect renewable energy sources to places that need it um and you know i do think some people with mostly good intentions are getting a little uh you know are sympathetic to permitting reform in the abstract because they think well yes maybe we'll also get some new pipelines but if it makes it easier to build renewable energy and transmission lines um isn't that worth it and i think a couple things first is that it's not necessarily just renewable energy that is going to get us out of this problem we have to the problem is the emissions from fossil fuels we one way or another we have to actually close down and stop building fossil fuel infrastructure not just keep building renewables it's it's not enough to do both build renewables and fossil fuels like a big part of this maybe the the most urgent part is to stop building the fossil fuel stuff. So this doesn't necessarily address that. And second, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we want to build more renewables faster. Um, what I'm not sympathetic to is that progressives should simply roll over and accept a deal with the devil that includes more support for uh, fossil fuels into the future. So there was a great article in Vice um, by the journalist Aaron Gordon about the National Environmental Policy Act um, that is the subject of some of this uh, controversy. Um, yes, it does tend to go slowly, he found. Um, so first, only only about 1% of projects actually go through uh, environmental impact statements, which are kind of the boogeyman of some of the people pushing permitting reform and are long um, reports and analyses that have to figure out what the environmental impact of a project can be. And you know, advocates often use these these statements to slow down projects, block them, oppose them. Um, most only need an, a, a less intensive environmental assessment, if that. Um, and so, first, just it's important to know that most building projects aren't going through the most intensive project process, excuse me. The other really important thing that came out of that article is that what is slowing down this process is not only that the, you know, the impact statements are too long or too many legal challenges or being too abused, and this is one of the things that permitting reform um, is intending to do, is to limit the period of time in which people can mount legal challenges to projects, Um, but because of staffing uh so these agencies that deal with these environmental impact statements, they don't have enough staffing, they don't have enough resources, they aren't able to do them fast. Um, and, you know, if there were a permanent reform bill that's like, yeah, let's staff these agencies, let's make sure they have the resources they need to act quickly. Um, let's, you know, prioritize the type of building that's needed for renewable low carbon energy and explicitly make it harder to build fossil fuels yes that would be possibly a good type of permitting reform um but it's not the type we're getting and there's two notes i want to make about that the first is there's this article by climate organizer shay o'reilly on medium um where Shay points out that most renewable projects um don't cross state lines, so they actually aren't subject to the federal NEPA process. Um, they'd be subject to state permitting processes. So this wouldn't actually help with most actual like wind and solar farms. Um, the beneficiaries would be transmission lines, which again maybe there is a place to uh, you know try to figure out how to how to make it easier to build those. Um, but also again pipelines. And so yeah, federal NEPA isn't necessarily even the place to go if you're trying to build more, um, solar and wind. But the other problem that I want to raise is this sort of, it's like a meme that's going around, um, kind of center left liberal climate people who basically have this idea that for decades and decades, environmentalists were only focused on blocking things, um, and now you know to fight climate change what we really need is to build things and so the old environmental laws the old environmental activists the old environmental movement this isn't really set up to build things they they really need to change their whole mindset if they cuz they're just so used to blocking things they just need to learn to build things and i find this really frustrating i you know i'm i'm 29 i'm, I'm i wasn't you know around fighting in the 70s and 80s and stuff Um, but one, I I think this is sort of dismissive of how much progress that environmental movement made, how important laws like NEPA and the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act are, um, and Endangered Species Act to this day, things like clean air, clean water, protecting endangered species, these pull very well, people generally still support them, and how these things are, are still important. Um, yes, absolutely, we want to fight climate change, we want to build things, but If you can build your transmission line through a sensitive habitat or not, if you can build your pipeline through a, you know, a, a watershed, someone's water supply, or you can build it elsewhere, you know, or with pipelines, you cannot build them at all. We need these processes to figure out, to prevent ourselves from harming people, from harming wildlife, um, as we, as we build these things, um the the problems of the environmental movement don't magically go away just because we have another problem with climate change um we ideally should try to find ways to to fight these things together and so two other things i want to bring up um on the democracy theme one is this idea of sacrifice zones um you know in some way places like pakistan have become places that wealthy countries uh sacrifice to be able to keep up their their high emitting lifestyles. Um, Again, just because the United States is reducing its emissions, its per capita emissions are still way higher than than many poorer countries um, and than many richer countries as well. Um, And this concept applies domestically as well. You know, when in the Pakistan section, I, I, I talked about the United States kind of as a monolith, but within the United States, you also have rich and the poor um you also have basically a you know a capitalist economic system that extracts from workers and the poor and the land uh to create profits for the rich um and through this economic system uh there are all these what is you know politely known as negative externalities but which is harm that it creates along the way Um, and that is not only emissions, yes, it's emissions, um, but it's also these localized impacts, um, it's, you know, water crises like we got in Jackson, Mississippi, droughts like we have in California, um, and it's people displaced because you need to mine for metals where they live, or because you want to build a pipeline through their property, or what have you, um, and... You know, I really think it's worth thinking about if that's the kind of world we want to create through our response to climate change. And I think that's what's been most frustrating about the discourse about the Inflation Reduction Act and permanent reform is I feel like the people talking about it aren't seriously thinking about, well, wait a minute, what if uh, this building project were going to go through my yard, we're going to threaten my water supply, we're going to disrupt habitat and ecosystem where i go hiking every day Uh, and it's just kind of an abstract math problem where we say like oh we you know we gain some emissions here but we lose some emissions here or you know we some people are displaced here but it's better for people here and yeah maybe on one level that's true um but i also think that a we should keep track of who are the people who we were sacrificing in each case and what a coincidence it's people of color, it's indigenous people, it's the poor working class. Um, and, and B, is that actually climate justice? No, it's clearly not. Um, and what this has to do with democracy is that democracy isn't only, or isn't just a, uh, you know, a majority writing roughshod over everyone else. Um, it's also hopefully, you know, making people, making sure people have some meaningful say over their lives. So when we talk about these issues, um, there's a great piece in Los Angeles Times, the reporter Sammy Roth talks about, yes, it will be a challenge to build all these um, solar and wind farms and and transmission lines and whatnot. Um, But someone in interviews uses the phrase, go slow to go fast. This idea that if you actually engage the community, engage people around, uh, you know, talk to them about the issues, talk about what's bothering them, that there are ways... um, to, you know get community involvement, get community support uh, and it doesn't necessarily always have to be antagonistic. Um, as an example, he, he mentions that there has been a lot of discussion between sort of desert conservationists and the solar industry over where in California's deserts it's okay to put solar panels and where we want to preserve habitat for you know bighorn rams and desert tortoises and, and creatures like that. Um, I would, of course, also add that we should think about whether we always need uh, more wind, more solar. Obviously, at this point we do, um, but we can think about ways to be more efficient, ways to use less energy, so that ultimately we don't need to build quite as much um, as we might otherwise have to. And for my last point on permanent reform, I want to bring in an article by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine. Last week, he made the genuinely wild claim that quote, the greatest enemy of the green energy revolution is climate change activists, close quote, um, because of their opposition to permitting reform. In the article, he basically makes it sound like climate activists are concerned about permitting reform, mainly because they hate Manchin. And he can't figure out why we hate Manchin, because didn't Manchin just help pass the biggest climate bill in history? Um, But as discussed earlier in this episode... And in previous episodes, this bill, while maybe a net positive, wasn't near good enough. And in fact, we have Manchin to blame for not being better. Um, There was a better climate bill on the, you know, on the offer that he opposed last year. Um, And, you know, going back further, you have Manchin and and Biden and kind of the whole centrist wing of the party to blame for not having a more ambitious Green New Deal earlier uh, as well. Okay, so he spends the whole article wondering why climate activists are so mad at Joe Manchin and why they could possibly be upset about a permanent reform proposal that, uh, you know, includes prioritizing fossil fuels along with renewables. Um, but the thing I want to to end on is that he again makes this claim that other people have made that environmental laws like NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, come from an earlier time where environmentalism had other priorities It, quote, reflects an antiquated idea of small-c conservative environmentalism, close quote. But there's this effort to cast environmentalists as these sort of nostalgic, dumb hippies who don't actually understand the hard-nosed policies we need to fight climate change right now. And I think that's what some of the pro permanent reform discourse relies on as a stereotype, and I think maybe there are areas where the stereotype has an element of truth, but again, it's it's so short-sighted of the fact that yeah, we still have all these other environmental problems. Even if climate change were solved today, there'd still be air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, nutrient runoff into rivers that's destroying species. You know, wild vertebrate populations just plummeting. It's bonkers to me that just because we have a serious thing like climate change. All of a sudden, everyone, people who claim to be liberal, people who claim to be Democrats seem to have forgotten um, that there was a reason for the environmental movement um, even before climate change. And that's going to be my segue into the final segment of this episode, uh, which hopefully will be the shortest one, which is about plastic bags. There was a tweet going around a week or two ago from Alex Stapp, who's the co-founder of the Institute for Progress, a, a think tank. He says, here's a fact that most people don't know. Single-use plastic grocery bags are actually the environmentally friendly option by a huge margin. Okay. And he posts uh, with a link this image of a graph from Our World in Data, which I think generally does good work. Um, But it's grocery bag comparisons of environmental impact. And it shows that you would have to reuse an organic cotton grocery bag 20,000 times to, and this is from the graph description, quote, to have as low an environmental impact as a standard single-use plastic bag, close quote. Okay, so there's a few problems here. First off, the graph, it just definitively does not show what Stapp says it shows. For instance, a woven polypropylene uh, recycled reusable plastic bag. So yes, it's, it's made of plastic, but it's reusable. You'd have to use it 45 times to have as low an impact. Okay, if you go grocery shopping once or twice a week, then yeah, you're there in less than a year. If you keep the bag for two or three years, it's clearly way better than a single-use plastic bag. Um, So the claim that a single-use plastic bag is actually the most environmentally friendly option by a wide margin is only true if you assume that you also single-use bags that that are are meant to be used many, many times. But if you go to the study, where do these numbers come from that organic cotton, uh, you have to use it 20,000 times, or conventional cotton, you have to use it 7,100 times? They come from the Danish Environmental Protection Agency, and it compares different bags across a variety of environmental types of environmental impact, from carbon emissions to water, eutrophication, etc. But it doesn't give you a... like composite single number uh, to a single metric of how much environmental impact it has firstly i'm not blaming the study for this that type of number doesn't really exist there's there's no real way to measure in a single number um, you know climate impact wildlife impact water impact etc um but there's maybe an issue with the number it does use for cotton, which which is it just decides to use the the number where it's the most reuses. So the impact here is on the ozone layer. So for organic cotton, you need to use it twenty thousand times to have as low an impact on the ozone layer as if you'd been using single use bags that whole time. But for climate, it's only about one hundred fifty times. Which again, you could if you had keep it around for three to five years, an organic cotton bag is better for the climate than a single-use plastic bag. For a conventional cotton bag, all you have to do is use it once a week for a year, and it's as good or better than a single-use plastic bag. Um, And it's worth mentioning, too, that they do assume that your single-use plastic bag, you take it home, you unload it, and then you also use it as a trash bag in your home once. Um, So really, they're considering that it's a double-use plastic bag, which is fair. Lots of people do this. I do this. Um, But again, single-use may be a bit of a misnomer. Uh, so, look, yes, on climate, cotton comes out better. On different other metrics, cotton might be worse. It also depends how you grow the cotton. It depends, you know, do you use electricity for irrigation? Does that electricity come from gas or renewable energy? There are all these numbers that potentially could make cotton much better than a uh, single-use plastic. And in other cases, make it more similar or even slightly worse, depending on the metric. Um, but I think I think this is a very useful study because I think sometimes our gut instinct of oh, what's the environmental and what's not might not necessarily be accurate. Um, for instance, you know, I mentioned my freshman year ethics class. I remember learning that um, local food is yeah better for the climate, but but the food miles traveled isn't actually a huge contributor to food's carbon footprint. You know, getting your beans from far away is still way better for the climate than getting your local beef, for instance. Um, there are others, you know, nuclear is is a complicated issue. i I have mixed feelings. I'm still skeptical of it. Um, but I think closing down a nuclear plant, which many environmentalists might celebrate, if that power is replaced by fossil fuels, as sometimes happens, and it's not necessarily an environmental victory. So I, I agree that there are complications, and we shouldn't just assume a cotton bag is the best option. Um, and maybe we think, are there other fibers we can make it from? Are there these, you know, reusable plastics that that might be better? As you know, as long as they're managed well in the waste cycle and they're eventually thrown away, which is a whole other issue. But. What many people on Twitter were taking this as is like, ah, oh, yeah, the the dumb hippies trying to ban plastic bags don't actually know science. Um, you know, I, I saw someone say that, you know, I try to operate not on vibes but based on science, and so that's why I don't use a cotton bag because using a cotton bag is evil. It's bad for actually bad for the environment. But of course, the person trying to go on science not vibes didn't bother going to the report didn't bother figuring out that actually this is about the ozone layer not about a broad and broader environmental impact and yes while the ozone layer was very serious um, and, and you know still is serious it's it's relatively under control now at least compared to where it was and I think there's a fair argument that we should be more worried about climate change now um, as opposed to ozone and yes we should also worry about these water issues I'm not this is not a go buy an organic cotton bag, um, or a conventional cotton bag, uh, post necessarily. Um, but you know, I, I try not to use plastic bags. I put stuff in my backpack or, or in a cloth bag that I already have. And nothing in that study is telling me that I should actually start using single use plastic bags. What it's telling me is don't trust vague charts that don't define how they're being measured and go to the source instead. It's telling me people love beating up on and people care about the environment and telling them they're hypocrites, um, telling them they're silly. And yeah, maybe sometimes it's true, but in this case, it wasn't. All right, those are my three topics for today, a roundup of recent climate and environmental news. Um, I hope you learned something. I would love to hear any feedback or or comments from anyone, um, any ratings. Uh, If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Um, It's about a dollar an episode at the lowest tier, about $2 uh, the next one up. Um, Our next episode, I'm traveling next week, so next week I'm taking off vacation. Don't worry, not on a plane. You can uh, get my feelings on air travel uh, by going back to one of my previous episodes called Why I Took the Train Instead of Planes or something like that. Um... And then the week after that is our book club about the Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. That's going to be Thursday the 29th at 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern. Um, For more information, go to my website or sign up for my newsletter. Um, And so, yeah, the next episode will be then in in three weeks, that first week of October. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Um, Hope you have a good day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.